More formally called subterranean developments, construction projects that lead to what are colloquially and often derisively called iceberg homes, involve building substantial basements underneath comparably small, above-ground real estate, usually because there are rules on the books that make it either expensive and tedious or illegal to build upward or outward. So if you're a very wealthy person who buys a nice house, maybe an older three-bedroom place in a nice neighborhood in a dense city, that house unto itself might be stellar for most people's needs. But you're a very wealthy person, and you want more bedrooms, maybe a pool, maybe a bowling alley and lounge, none of which will fit in the square footage you own in above-ground property. Local laws won't let you build up, as many such laws either have caps on the number of stories you can have on your home to avoid messing with the view or to prevent property developers from swooping in, scooping up homes and converting them into multi-story apartments or condos. And you can't build outward horizontally because it's a dense area in a city and there might be laws about buying up neighboring properties and combining them as well. So you start digging instead. You expand an existing basement or drill an entirely new one, and you go down and down and down, and in some cases out as well, expanding your underground real estate to the very edges of your legal ownership, beyond your home's walls, bumping right up against the on-paper lines, dividing your yard from your neighbors. This is not a theoretical, maybe someone will do this at some point, concept, and it's not unusual. It's so common, in fact, that the local legal and regulatory establishments in parts of London have had to produce and publish separate guideline documents exclusively related to subterranean development efforts because so many of their residents were either engaging in the practice already or trying to figure out how to legally engage in the practice in the next several years. And the below-ground spaces these homeowners have been building are substantial. Some homes go down four stories, creating an inverted medium-rise building underneath an above-ground two-story mansion. Some homes have basements jam-packed with pools, gyms, movie theaters, ballrooms, servants' quarters, and just about anything else you can imagine. Garages full of sports cars, elaborate elevator systems, and HVAC infrastructure, rock climbing walls, entirely separate apartments and living quarters. Imagine suddenly having access to two or three or four times as much real estate as you've already got above ground. And that's pretty much what folks opting for this option have to work with, alongside a practically infinite amount of money to play with when deciding how to kit these spaces out. By some measures, this is a clever way of making use of the space without overwhelming the above-ground world. You can keep a historical mansion intact while still having all the amenities of modern life by building downward in this way. And you can have all the space and stuff you want without cluttering up the streets or the view in your neighborhood. You can also avoid accidentally kicking off a condo construction arms race, as might be the case if you lobby to change local regulations, which would then allow you to build upwards instead. The downside of this subterranean pivot, though, is that this type of construction can take years, which means years of construction noise and vibrations and heavy machinery, which can raise quite a ruckus as they dig and haul away all that dirt and rock. Such developments can also negatively impact neighbors beyond the noise and rumbles generated while the construction is being undertaken. 
Such excavations can cause the ground in the area to shift, which can cause the foundations of neighboring buildings to slant and crack and, in some cases, even distort to the point that the neighbors themselves are trapped inside their home because their floors have shifted to such a degree in such a short period of time that their doors no longer open. That happened at least once, and there have been a few instances of neighboring homes collapsing altogether, their foundations made so unstable from their neighbors digging that their own dirt and rock just collapsed, taking portions of their home with it. New regulations in some parts of London and the surrounding area in particular are beginning to rein in some of the most elaborate, to the point of being abusive to their neighbors, examples of this type of construction, mostly by delineating precisely how much of one's territory can be used in this way, leaving more of a buffer zone between one's home and one's neighbor's property, which should help with the aforementioned ground destabilization and reduce some of the noise and rumbling that might otherwise annoy everyone in the area for the several years of development. That said, many areas in the UK and around the world still don't have any regulations or any substantial effective regulations related to this topic, and some of those that do, and which have homeowners associations that are meant to manage such things, don't really do much to cap or regulate it because the people doing this type of building tend to be super wealthy and are often on the boards of such associations alongside all their friends. So the rate of denial for such building plans tends to be low. And that has allowed, in London alone, as of 2019, according to research by Newcastle University, something like 4,650 extended basements of this kind to be built, containing, between them, around 1,000 gyms, 456 movie theaters, 381 wine cellars, 376 pools, 340 game rooms, 242 saunas or steam rooms, and 63 underground garages. And that's just what was approved between 2008 and 2017. It's expected new data from the locked-away-at-home pandemic era of the past few years will garner still higher numbers. What I'd like to talk about today is real estate, and in particular, how homeowners associations and the rules and regulations they create and maintain, often well-meaningly, influence things well beyond the neighborhoods they manage, and not always for the better. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. In 2018, the online real estate marketplace platform Zillow began to transition to what its leadership thought might be its next, better, maybe final form, that of a real estate market maker. What that means in practice is that Zillow has traditionally, since it was founded in 2006, served as kind of a fancy Craigslist or Facebook marketplace for real estate listings. You could visit Zillow's site or use its app and peruse homes for sale or rent. And this was a compelling offer because most of the other options when it was released were either less visual or less searchable. There was a lot of newspaper listing era baggage on many of the other options at the time, and Zillow was fairly snazzy and slick in comparison. 
And still today, it remains something of an entertainment option as well, alongside being a real-deal way to find a place to buy or rent in cities around the world, as people lose time ogling high-end apartments in Manhattan and low-end, weird-as-hell houses in the middle of nowhere in cities and towns they'll probably never visit, just for fun, to see what places look like and to imagine what it might be like to move to and live in such places. That's what they did for over a decade, until that 2018 transition when they decided to start buying up homes themselves. The theory was that Zillow had all this data, all these listings, and all this high-end technology that allowed them to parse that data for meaning. This meaning was typically provided to users and real estate agents who could make use of it to find good matches, both in the sense of finding potential homes to buy or rent, and in the sense of allowing sellers to find potential customers that would be good fits. They wanted to cut out the middleman, basically, and to use that data themselves to find good buys, homes that they could scoop up and then sell for a profit. And like any good tech company, they thought they could do so more efficiently than their competitors because of the data moat that they boasted. It would allow them to find stuff their competitors could not find, and they could leverage their stockpile of wealth to make the purchases, then make necessary repairs and sell these homes on scale. They had their own platform to use for this purpose, after all, and it shouldn't be too difficult, they thought, to find local repair people to jump from home to home as they purchased them, to do whatever painting and re-carpeting or whatever else needed to be done to get the home ready for flipping. This was also thought to be an appealing direction for the company because it would allow them to expand beyond the advertising model they'd always used in the past basically selling ads on their online property and selling people the option of promoting their home listing or real estate company to other users. That's been a goldmine for tech companies for a long time, but as operating system makers like Apple have gotten more assiduous in their data collection limitations, even giants like Facebook have been feeling the burn, as they can't sell as many ads in as many places and can't collect as much data as they previously could on iPhones and other devices that are becoming more locked down and privacy-focused. So the writing was on the wall here that Zillow needed another reliable income stream, and this seemed promising enough that they even brought back one of the company's former CEOs and co-founders, who was also a former Microsoft executive, to lead the transition. This new model, using all that data, resulted in a feature called Zillow Offers, which basically meant the company's software would find promising homes they predicted they could turn around and flip for a profit in a relatively short period of time. And the owners of those homes would receive an offer from Zillow that was pretty great by most estimations. Generally, it would be just over the home's current market value, and the sale would be pretty quick, within a week or two, and wouldn't require any serious homework or inspections. The company identifies your home as a promising location, makes a generous offer, both according to their algorithms, and that's that. You have your check for the full amount and are on your way. No muss, no fuss. And the people who received these offers generally have had very good things to say about the model, suggesting that it was the best home-selling experience they've ever had. Unfortunately for Zillow, the business model behind this concept did not turn out as planned for them. Zillow offers brought in the majority of the company's revenue in the years following its launch, but the tech behind it apparently failed to accurately predict movements in home prices over time. And that meant the company scooped up some nice homes, but wasn't able to make sufficient profits from reselling them to be profitable. The company announced it would be closing Zillow offers 
in late 2021 and announced this year that it lost $881 million on this effort in 2021 alone, which is just a staggering loss and one that led to the firing of 25% of its total workforce and a rapid sell-off of the entire inventory of homes it had acquired under that Zillow Offers model. The larger company, which still runs an online real estate platform, is doing okay, by all indications, in large part because of a hot real estate market, but those expansionary ambitions have been put on hold for the time being because of what turned out to be a neat concept in theory that belly-flopped painfully when put into real-world practice. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from the Wall Street Journal, and it's entitled, Homeowner Groups Seek to Stop Investors from Buying Houses to Rent. Homeowners associations, or HOAs, vary in their shape, size, and the powers they wield, and they take different forms depending on the country and government setup in which they exist. But in general, they're made up of local property owners, and they operate as a governing organization, management entity, and at times corporate entity, for purposes ranging from promoting local homes and commercial real estate, managing things like garbage pickup and the maintenance of local parks and streets, and acting in what is thought to be the general interest of members, which will tend to mean local property owners, including those who are not actively part of the HOA as part of the governing board or decision-making leadership. Generally, if you want to buy a home within a neighborhood managed by an HOA, you must become a member of that HOA, and you will typically need to pay into it as well, contributing membership dues that allow the organization to perform its various functions. Some HOAs are very hands-on and powerful, others gesture at management, but mostly just exist to help settle disputes that periodically pop up between their members. And the powers HOAs wield at the legal level vary from place to place. Within the U.S., for instance, where they're more common, especially since the mid-1960s compared to most other countries, each state has different laws delineating what they can do and what they can't do. And places like Florida and California have famously powerful HOAs because of these laws, while others, like Massachusetts, have comparably few laws related to this type of organizational structure. This piece in the journal is about a relatively recent trend being seen around the U.S. of HOAs consciously and methodically blocking the purchase of homes in their neighborhoods to anyone or any entity they suspect wants to use that property as a rental property. Such rules have been on the books for ages as some neighborhoods want to keep the majority or all of their homes in the hands of owners who actually live there, as there's an implied benefit of having a neighborhood full of people who live in the homes they own. They'll tend to invest more in their properties, tend to take better care of the local infrastructure, and will generally have more skin in the game, making it more likely they will do the things that make the neighborhood not just clean, but also pleasant and livable because they're actually living there themselves, so there's a bit of self-interest in their calculations. This general concept has been taken up a notch over the past year or two due to several rapidly changing variables in the real estate space, one of which is the aforementioned newfound propensity for companies like Zillow to pop into desirable neighborhoods and scoop up a bunch of homes for their own purposes. In Zillow's case, the ambition was to buy homes at a given price and then rapidly flip them for a somewhat higher price, making a quick buck in the process. Other companies, though, the majority of companies doing this type of buying right now, in fact, are more keen to create recurring revenue, and the simplest way to do that in real estate is to buy properties and then rent them out. Historically, 
the smart money in rental properties in the U.S., especially in larger cities where rents tend to be higher, has been in multi-unit buildings, duplexes, fourplexes, and apartment buildings that allow the owner to buy one asset and rent it out to many people, typically leading to higher and more reliable profit margins over time. When the COVID-19 pandemic threw all our expectations and norms into a tailspin back in early 2020, though, one of the cultural mores that shifted around the U.S. was where people wanted to live. The general tide of history had swept people into denser areas, and especially into nice, urban, walkable downtown spaces in these larger cities across the U.S., But that tide was partially reversed when other human beings became walking, talking, sneezing, and coughing potential vectors for a deadly disease. People began to leave these dense downtown areas and headed instead for more rural suburbs and even isolated houses in the middle of nowhere. That tide reversal led to a sudden and dramatic surge in demand for rental properties in these outlying areas beyond the traditional domain of multi-unit buildings. Not only were people wanting a yard and space for themselves without neighbors to worry about, but apartment buildings and even duplexes didn't really exist in these more rural areas to begin with. So single-family homes became the name of the game. And a bunch of companies that would typically opt for fourplexes and apartments instead began to seek out deals in desirable suburbs and smaller towns, scooping up whatever they could find before this sudden demand raised prices too substantially. Another variable that has contributed to this trend of businesses, real estate companies with a portfolio of rental properties buying up homes instead of apartment buildings, instead of the traditional trend of families primarily buying these homes, has been the surge in home buying activity globally, and in the U.S. and other Western nations in particular, during the pandemic. Part of this trend can be tied to that same desire to just move out of cities and reinvest decent city living wages in more rural areas where that money goes further and where you and your family can spread out a bit and have more private space, have a trampoline and a little garden in the backyard, that kind of thing. Part of it, though, is related to incredibly low interest rates that made buying a home with a mortgage super cheap compared to any other time in most of recent history. Lower interest rates mean you pay less on top of the money you borrow to pay for the house. And that means the overall cost of your purchase is far lower in total once it's all paid off compared to purchasing in a higher interest rate environment. Low interest rates led to a bonanza in home buying across the U.S. after the first few months of the pandemic, and a surge of government money into people's pockets poured fuel on that frenzy. The demand for existing homes was furthered still by supply chain snarls that led to a shortage of all sorts of things, a snarl that continues to this day, as of the day I'm recording this, in some industries and parts of the world, but which was especially hard-hitting in the construction industry because of how that industry operates and because of how much last-minute shipping is involved with so many components of it. In essence, the cost of constructing new homes skyrocketed, and that meant just like the price of used cars grew to silly levels for a while, as new cars became difficult to come by due to shipping snarls and a shortage in microchips that made manufacturing new cars tricky and expensive, the price of used homes also ballooned for the same reason. Higher prices and difficulties in getting the materials necessary to build more of them, which led to more scarcity. 
That, in turn, meant these existing homes saw huge and sudden price increases, and that meant many of them were suddenly out of reach for families, but were still within reach for companies that intended to make money from them, and which suspected, because of the way trend lines were going, that they could make some pretty serious money from these assets in the coming years. So those higher prices weren't the hurdle for businesses that they were for ordinary folks who meant to simply live in them themselves. Looping back around to the HOAs and their policies, this meant more companies were scrambling for a smaller stock of homes. But those homes were mostly being seriously assessed for purchasing potential by companies, because many families were being priced out of the market entirely. And in fact, a recent survey by the New York Fed found that the average expected probability of buying a home in existing homeowners dropped by nearly 8%, from 68.5% down to 60.7%. And what that means, basically, is that folks were asked if they thought they would be able to buy another home if they moved from their existing home. And while previously, in 2021, 68.5% of families said they would expect to be able to buy another home if that happened within the next three years, that dropped to 60.7% in 2022, marking the first reduction in that number since the survey started asking that question in 2014, and the lowest assessment of the familial ability to afford a house in the near future since 2015. And again, that is amongst folks who already own homes. Amongst renters, the outlook is even more grim. In 2021, 51.6% of surveyed renters said they thought they would probably own a home at some point in the future, and that's down to 43.3% in 2022. That's also a low point for this survey, and not ideal by traditional family milestone standards when you consider that this is the majority of people who currently rent saying that they don't think they will ever own their own home, an asset that, in the U.S. at least, is considered by many to be vital to achieving and maintaining a middle-class economic status. This pushback against rental companies by HOAs is also further empowering another trend that makes sense from one perspective, but which is arguably quite harmful from another. That trend is sometimes referred to as NIMBYism, NIMBY standing for not in my backyard, and referring typically to homeowners believing that things like affordable housing are important, but not wanting any affordable housing to be built near them. The logic of this posture, and it usually is a posture rather than an ideological belief, because again, a lot of people who will vote against allowing affordable housing in their neighborhood will tell you that they think affordable housing is necessary and important in general. The logic of this posture is that allowing affordable housing in their neighborhood could lower local property values, which in turn would mean they lose value on their ever so important home asset. Which makes sense, again, because the home, owning one's home, is generally considered to be a fundamental foundational asset in the American psyche, and one can be expected in general to want to maintain and increase the value of that asset. On the other hand, many cities around the U.S., and this is a global thing too, particularly in wealthier countries, but it's especially pronounced in the U.S. right now, have a serious housing shortage, and an affordable housing shortage even more so. Real estate prices are increasing, and so are rental prices, and a lot of folks making minimum wage or thereabouts are being priced out of these cities, which sucks for them directly, as they can't then benefit from the economic growth in these cities that they helped create. 
But it also sucks for the cities because that means less diversity of people, more employment issues because folks can't afford to live there if they work in certain industries, getting paid at lower levels, and in general, a spiral of wage and price-related issues that can amplify inflation and further stoke such crises. Some HOA leaders argue that they want to keep rentals from popping up in their area, in part because that could further drive up local prices. The idea being that they want to see more homeowners for the aforementioned reasons, and thus would prefer that folks who move in pay for mortgages, which in some cases are about the same price as monthly rent. And if a bunch of homes in their area become rentals instead, scooped up by these companies, that could distort that price comparison, leading to more renters and fewer owners, fewer people able to afford that component of the American dream. Now, it's difficult to predict how this will play out because some of the areas most clamoring for more affordable housing are also dominated by HOAs that are, from their perspective, doing their best to keep their members' assets intact and surging in value, and doing their best, by their assessment at least, to keep mortgages and home ownership within the reach of more people. This often means, though, as a byproduct, these groups will use their economic and political influence to nudge local leaders to make choices that keep more housing from going in, or from going in where it needs to be built, based on broader need and intentionality, as opposed to just the needs, financial and otherwise, of these homeowners. There are some countervailing forces operating against this tendency, including small pockets of YIMBY, yes in my backyard, groups that are trying to get more housing and other things HOAs commonly fight against, like renewable energy infrastructure, which they likewise oppose, not necessarily ideologically, but because they don't want it built nearby, where it might reduce their property value. They're trying to get more of those put in, and YIMBYs are trying to create their own political influence in these areas to help make that so, with some small successes thus far, here and there. Though it's hard to say how much influence they'll ever be able to have, because those with property, also on average, tend to have more money and connections, which in many districts means folks living under HOAs also have the ear of those in charge or they are those in charge, are more likely to become politicians themselves, which can serve to lock in these realities and the secondary issues they create, contribute to, or perpetuate, even if everyone involved will swear up and down that they're hoping to tamp down inflation, create more affordable housing, and build more equitable societies for everyone. book I'd like to recommend today is called Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life by Luke Burgess. This is a solid book on a topic that I think most people could benefit from knowing about. It's the concept of mimetic desire, which essentially means wanting what other people want, and the different ways that this predilection our leaning toward wanting what other people want for a variety of actually quite understandable biological and social and psychological reasons, why that can be used against us and why it's worth understanding where our desires and wants and needs come from and how we might sort the things we should actually pursue and acquire from the things that we want for reasons that are not necessarily as deeply felt or for reasons that are more superficial that will not necessarily positively contribute to our lives long term, but will only give us a surge of momentary pleasure 
from the pursuit or acquisition of that thing. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Wanting by Luke Burgess. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of all of my projects, including my other podcasts, of which there are three, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.